Chapter 8 of True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Ernest. True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World by Adolphus W. Greeley. The Angekok Kalutunah and the Starving Whites. Everyone hears the voice of humanity, under whatever clime he may be born through whose breast flows the gushing stream of life pure and unrestrained goethe as elsewhere noted dr elisha kent kane united states navy in the brig advance while in search of sir john franklin was forced into winter quarters at van rensselaer harbor greenland in the autumn of eighteen fifty three as the harbor ice did not break up the following summer the question arose in august eighteen fifty four as to the proper line of action to be taken in order to preserve the lives of the crew the stock of fuel was practically exhausted the provisions were so depleted in quantity and restricted in quality as to threaten starvation while in the matter of health kane describes the crew as a set of scurvy riddled broken down men he believed nevertheless and events proved that his judgment was sound and practicable that the safety of the party would be best ensured by remaining in the brig during the winter saying in spite of the uncertainty a host of expedients are to be resorted to and much robinson crusoe work ahead moss was to be gathered for eking out our winter fuel willow stems sorrel and stone crops collected as antiscorbutics and buried in the snow the danish interpreter peterson strongly urged the abandonment of the ship and an attempt to reach by boats the danish colony at upper navik thus crossing baffin bay thus crossing baffin bay though his ice experiences were only as a subordinate with penny's arctic expedition his opinion caused a separation of the party with his unfailing quality of courtesy kane accorded free action to each individual he called all hands and explain to them frankly the considerations that have determined me to remain. I advised them strenuously to forego the project, and told them I should freely give my permission to those desirous of making the attempt. Eight decided to remain, and nine to make the attempt, among whom were Dr. Hayes and Peterson. The main incidents of their unsuccessful journey and their relations with the Etta Eskimo, whose material aid saved their lives, form the principal parts of this narrative. The Boat Party under command of the dane j c peterson started august twenty eighth eighteen fifty four provided with all that they could carry in the way of food arms ammunition clothing camp and boat gear i gave them says kane their portion of our resources justly and even liberally they carried with them a written assurance of a brother's welcome should they be driven back and this assurance was redeemed when hard trials had prepared them to share again our fortunes it required eight days of heavy and unremitting labor to get the boats and stores to open water a start so discouraging that one man deserted the party and returned to the advance the ice conditions were most adverse from the very beginning entailing sufferings and hazards from day to day among their experiences were besetment in the open pack separation of boat and cargo during portages some of the men adrift on detached floes, and stormy weather that kept them once for thirty hours without either warm food or drinking water. With courage, even if judgment was wanting, they pushed on and improved matters by obtaining food and another boat from the cache made at Littleton Island by Kane the preceding year. 
A gale nearly swamped them in rounding Cape Alexander, south of which they were forced to shore by the insetting ice pack. Ice and weather were too much for them, and they eventually landed in Whale Sound at twenty miles north of Cape Perry. They had come to the end, a hundred miles from Kane, scarcely an eighth of their proposed voyage completed. Here they were most hospitably received at an Eskimo encampment, and had their first view of native life in its own environment. The principal man of the band was swarthy-faced Kalutana, the Angekok, or medicine man, of the wandering bands that travel to and fro along the narrow, ice-free land between Cape York and Etta. He was one of the Eddas who had visited the advance the preceding winter, and so recognized them as friends. In a spirit of hospitality, the Angekok invited the voyagers to his encampment, where a feast of walrus blubber and meat would be given them. It appeared, however, that the natives as a body did not relish the inroads to be made on their scanty supply of food, and one old woman especially inveighed against the feast. In the end, the dark-skinned Kalutana, enforcing his authority and asserting his dignity as the Angekok of the tribe, tersely and firmly said, The white men shall have blubber, which ended the discussion. Hayes records, Our savage friends were kind and generous. They anticipated every wish. Young women filled our kettles with water. Kalutana's wife brought us a steak of seal and a dainty piece of liver. The hunt had literally been unproductive, and they had not in the whole settlement food for three days. The supply of blubber obtained was sufficient to fill our keg. We distributed to them a few small pieces of wood, a dozen needles, and a couple of knives. We could not obtain any food, for the poor creatures had done either to give or to barter. The architectural skill of these, the most northerly people of the world, was not without interest to Hayes. I found the huts to be in shape much like an old-fashioned clay oven, square in front and sloping back into the hill. The whole interior was about ten feet in diameter and five and a half feet high. The walls were made of stones, moss, and the bones of whale, narwhal, and other animals. They were not arched, but drawn in gradually and capped by long slabs of slate stone stretching from side to side. The floor was covered with flat stones, and the rear half of it was elevated a foot. This elevation, called a breck, served both as bed and seat, being covered with dry grass over which were spread the skins of bears and dogs. Under a small corner breck lay a litter of pups, and under another was stowed a joint of meat. Footnote. In order to raise the puppies and save them from the devouring jaws of the ravenous starving dogs, litters are kept in the huts, or elsewhere in a protected place, until they are large enough to run about and seek their mother's aid when attacked. Above the passageway opened a window, a square sheet of dried intestines neatly sewed together. The entrance hole, close to the front wall, was covered with a piece of seal skin. The walls were lined with seal or fox skins stretched to dry. In the cracks between the stones of the walls were thrust whip stocks and bone pegs on which hung coils of harpoon lines. The lamps were made of soapstone and in shape much resembled a clamshell, being about eight inches in diameter. The cavity was filled with oil, and on the straight edge a flame was burning brilliantly. The wick, which supplied fuel to the flame, was of moss. Above the flame hung, suspended from the roof, an oblong, nearly square, cooking pot made of soapstone. Over this was a rack made of bare rib bones lashed together crosswise, on which were placed to dry stockings, mittens, trousers, and other articles of clothing. There were three lamps, and centering around its own particular lamp were three families, one represented by three generations. 
Peterson's party went into winter quarters sixteen miles south of Cape Perry, where their equipment was landed. The boats hauled up, and their tents pitched. As the men suffered frightfully in the thin tents, a hut was built in a crevice of a neighboring cliff. With the well-known resourcefulness of the American sailor, they put up quite a comfortable shelter roofed with the sails of the boat. A canvas-covered wooden frame served as a door, and an old muslin shirt greased with seal blubber admitted a feeble light through the hole called a window. Three weeks had now passed since the party had left Kalatna, and the attempt to live on the resources of the country had utterly failed, the only game killed by the hunter Peterson being eighteen ptarmigan, arctic grouse. With food for a week only, to appease the gnawing pains of hunger, we resorted to the expedient of eating the rock lichen, which our party called stone moss. Black externally, with a white interior, it is an inch in diameter and the thickness of a wafer. When boiled, it makes a glutinous and slightly nutritious fluid. Poor as was this plant, it at least filled the stomach and kept off the horrid sensation of hunger until we got to sleep. By the middle of October, the situation was impossible. With the cold forty degrees below the freezing point, their bedding damp, the stone moss disagreeing with some, and one man sick. They talked of a desperate foot journey to seek aid at Netlik, the native encampment forty miles to the north, but food and strength seemed equally lacking. Even if made, would the journey be profitable? Hayes had already noted that the Eskimos were poor beyond description. Nature seems to have supplied them with nothing but life, and they appear to have wrested from the animal world everything which they possessed. Clothed wholly in skins, with weapons fashioned of bone, they subsisted exclusively on animal food. He adds, There seems no hope for us save in stone moss. During an awful blizzard, when hopes were feeblest, two native hunters burst into the hut equally to the astonishment and relief of the boat party. Hayes says, Invested from head to foot in a coating of ice and snow, shapeless lumps of whiteness, they reminded me of my boy-made snow kings. Their long, heavy fox-skin coats, surmounted by head hoods, their bearskin trousers, their sealskin boots and mittens were saturated with snow. Their hair, eyelashes, and few chin hairs were sparkling with white frost. Each carried in his right hand a whip and in his left a lump of frozen meat and blubber. Throwing the meat on the floor, they stripped off their outer garments and hung them on the rafters. Underneath their frosty garments, they wore a shirt of bird skins. One of these newcomers was the Angicoc, the sturdy, good-natured, and voluble Kalutana. Soon we were rejoicing in a good substantial meal at the expense of our guests. The next morning, when the Inuits were leaving, the starving sledge dogs attacked Hayes, who says, An instant more, and I should have been torn to pieces. I had faced death before, but never had I felt as then, my blood fairly curdled in my veins. Death down the red throats of a pack of wolfish dogs was something peculiarly unpleasant. The poor animals, howling piteously, had been tied separately for thirty-six hours and were savagely hungry. Every line or piece of skin or article of food was out of their reach. One, however, had already eaten the trace by which he was tied. Of the critical situation, Hayes writes, we had thirty-six biscuits and three pints of bread dust. Each man had a biscuit a day, a quantity insufficient for our need. The hunt having failed utterly to supply us, we must get our food of the natives, or not at all. Accordingly, we made with the Angicoc a treaty by which his people are to furnish us as much food as we might want, and we are to supply them with wood, iron, knives, and needles at rates to be subsequently fixed upon. 
it was a fortnight before the inuits again appeared and meanwhile the whale-boat was broken up for fuel all of the party had become frightfully weak and three men were sick hayes piteously says what shall we do will the eskimos never come i never go out without expecting to find a corpse when i return at last after two weeks the natives returned coming from a hunt with the greater part of three bears while the starving men were fattening on the juicy bear's meat they left us yet there was a keynote of fear in the statement that the natives were very chary of the meat as we obtained only enough to suffice us for a few days their gratitude for trifles and the willingness of the natives to give their last bit of food was shown a few days later by a young eskimo he had nothing on his sledge but two small pieces of blubber four birds about a pound of bear meat a bear skin and a small lamp all these he laid at our feet temporarily saved from death by starvation through food from the natives the whites planned for the future there was much wild talk about wintering at cape york of hiring the natives to take them across the unknown ice of baffin bay to upper navick finally it was agreed that life depended on their obtaining supplies from or by their return to Kane and the advance either of these alternatives a difficult as well as a bitter resort the distance along the ice foot of the winding coast was estimated to be about three hundred miles and it was hard to admit that their departure from the brig against the wishes and advice of their commander had been a serious mistake at least they would try their friend kalutna on their various schemes before admitting their error the angekok came with food as usual and at the same time there was a new visitor a widow with a load of frozen birds the little auks killed the summer before and stored for winter consumption she declined to eat the walrus and held fast to her own food it appeared at last that she was a patient of the medicine-man kalutna whose power over his comrades lay in his virtues as a sorcerer hayes says the widow greatly interested me she ate birds for conscience sake her husband's soul had passed into the body of a walrus as a temporary habitation and angekok kalutna had prescribed that for a certain period she should not eat the flesh of this animal as bear and seal were scarce she was compelled to fall back on birds this penance he adds was of a kind which every eskimo undergoes upon the death of a near relation the angekok announces to the mourners into what animal the soul of the departed has passed and henceforth until the spirit has shifted its quarters they are not to partake of the flesh of that animal the party cheered by the food brought by kalutna broached to him their wishes he listened gladly to the tales of the delight and charms of upper navick sung by peterson but declined to attempt the ice journey across baffin bay which was known to him only as a great ice-filled ocean wherein had perished many of his tribe as had lately the husband of the bird-eating widow neither would he sell his dogs without whom he could neither travel nor hunt to their surprise he consented to take one of the party north to the advance the commander of the boat party peterson decided to make the journey and with him a seaman godfrey was unwisely allowed to go and the sledge was also accompanied to the native settlement at netlik by two other men the netlik visit resulted in feasts for the men who stopped there but peterson and godfrey turned back a few days later to the boat camp they said that they were in fear of their lives from an eskimo sipsu with whom they had trouble hayes records the despair of the party at this situation saying we are at the end of our plans and in two days more shall be at the end of our provisions we are destitute helpless what shall we do the day that food failed he rejoices thus 
again the eskimos appear to us more as our good angels than as our enemies Kaledina and another hunter came to us to-day and threw at our feet a large piece of walrus beef and a piece of liver doubtless through the friendly influence of the angekok other hunters came to the starving whites from time to time with meat even the dreaded bully sipsu receiving in payment bits of wood or of iron it was none the less clear that the party unable to hunt itself could not hope to live through the winter on meat from the natives who at times were themselves on the verge of starvation it was decided to obtain a sledge and dogs wherewith to make the journey back to the brig to build a sledge hayes examined those of the inuits of which he says it was the most ingeniously contrived specimen of the mechanic art that i have ever seen made wholly of bone and leather the runners square behind and rounded upward in front about five feet long were slabs of bone not solid but composed of pieces of various shapes and sizes cunningly fitted and tightly lashed together near their margins were rows of little holes through which were run strings of sealskin by which the blocks were fastened together making a slab almost as firm as a board these bones were flattened and ground a work of months for a single runner into the required shape with stones the runners were shod with ivory from the tusk of the walrus ground flat and its corners squared with stones it was fastened to the runner by a sealskin string which was looped through two countersunk holes this sole though composed of a number of pieces was uniform and as smooth as glass the runners fourteen inches apart were fastened together by bones tightly lashed these crossbars were the femur of the bear the antlers of the reindeer and the ribs of the narwhal two walrus ribs were lashed one to the after end of each runner for upstanders and were braced by a piece of reindeer antler secured across the top quite hopeless of building anything that should be as good as this they succeeded in making an indifferent sled from the remains of their boats which had been broken up and largely used for fuel four dogs were bought but a single day's journey showed how impossible it was to hope to reach cane with such a wretched field outfit they must resort to the natives and especially to kalutna the angekok after endless efforts the boat party succeeded in obtaining dog teams sufficient to enable them to make the return journey to the advance as peterson had gone ahead with one man it left hayes to conduct to the ship the other men one being too sick to travel it was a journey full of suffering from the extreme cold of danger especially in rounding the precipitous cliffs of cape alexander where the strong sea current from the north and the tides from the south cause danger spots that often bring death to the midwinter sledgemen of their treatment while travelling up the coast one instance is given by hayes we received all manner of kind attentions from our hosts the women pulled off our boots mittens coats and stockings and hung them up to dry my beard was frozen fast to the fur of my coat and it was the warm hand of kalutna's wife that thawed away the ice meats of different kinds were brought in and offered to us of the passage around the cape hayes records for the space of several feet the ice foot was not more than fifteen inches wide and sloping a halt was called and men and dogs crouched behind the rocks for shelter the furious wind still lashing the waves against the frozen shore at our feet whirled great sheets of snow down upon us from the overhanging cliffs we could not face the pitiless storm at our backs and to go forward seemed impossible discarding my mittens and clinging with my bare hands to the crevices in the rock i moved cautiously along the sloping shelf 
below the breaking surf yawned to receive any victim who made an inadvertent step i shall not soon forget the joy and thankfulness with which i found myself upon the broad ice belt at the farther side of this dangerous place the dogs were driven forward by their native masters and seized by the collars were dragged around the point the sledges were pushed along the shelf and turned on one runner and held until the dogs could stretch their traces and bounding forward at the word whirled them around in safety before they could topple over the precipice finally van rensselaer harbor was reached and the returning wanderers blinded frostbitten and exhausted staggered on to the deck of the advance with his generous heart their old commander kane received them with open arms and brotherly greetings one cannot but class as astounding these human experiences which marked the first extended relations between the men of etta and the adventurous explorers who had come from the outside world in this instance there had been brought face to face the hitherto unknown men of the stone age and the representatives of the high and vaunted civilization that aims to uplift and to dominate all the nations of the earth on the one hand were the eddas who were actual children of the stone age clothed in skins without wood or metal having neither houses nor boats using stone utensils in their rude huts of skin or of rock and living solely by the hunt following the chase with weapons of bone through untold hardships they rested day by day precarious food from their home environment a habitat on one of the most desolate reaches of the arctic coasts their struggles for mere existence under these harsh conditions of uncertainty were such as either among the men of the stone age or in the imperial cities of to-day engender intense selfishness and lead to deadly contest in order to save the strong at the expense of the weak on the other hand were the men of the civilized world provided with boats furnished with selected food especially equipped for polar service and armed with the best weapons engaged in the mission of relieving the men of franklin's missing squadron with their superior knowledge and their trained minds they were supposed to be able not only to be self-reliant and self-sustaining but also to extend aid to the needy through the irony of fickle fortune these civilized men had found themselves unable to maintain life by the chase of the land and sea-game of the region in dire distress with failing food they faced certain death unless aid should come from outside sources to the savage and famine-threatened men of etta the appalling condition of their alien visitors was clearly evident moreover if the helpless white men were simply left to themselves they must soon perish leaving for the inuits untold wealth of hitherto unknown treasures of iron and wood of cloth and cordage of robes and of weapons in this fearful crisis amid arctic cold and in polar darkness savage humanity rose to heroic heights selfishness and covetousness stood abashed among these children of the stone age and in their stead were awakened holy feelings of human pity and a spirit of self-denying charity their deeds show that in the white north as in the sunny south there abide the true spirit of brotherly love and a recognized sense of human interdependence after the etta manner there recurred the episode of the samaritan charity of ancient judea yet the action of the inuit even surpassed the deed of the good man of palestine for other aid was not the outcome of a rich man's loving generosity to a penniless sufferer but it also paralleled the widow's might for kalutana the savage sorcerer and his tribesmen gave the sole food of to-morrow for their wives and children to save from death the rich and alien white men of the unknown south 
does heroism rise to nobler deeds in the midst of our superior civilization and higher development end of chapter eight recording by mark ernest